Good afternoon, I'm Julia Alana. As she was saying, I came into Alanon 19 years ago and just celebrated my anniversary in August the 1st. I'm very grateful. I'm a member of the Serenity Alanon family group and it meets in Wilmington. And we would be glad to have you stop by and see us. I uh, always tell people that uh, live in that town that meet Alanon, you know, to always come to the church where they sell the pumpkins that we call, and they know they come to the pumpkin church for so you don't know where we are. Uh, this is my first visit to Kentucky. I've been to Cincinnati many times with my husband, who grew up in uh, Ohio, and uh, so I had the privilege to be in Cincinnati before. That was the coldest place I've ever been in my life. Steve <laughs> <laughs> spoke at a New Year's Eve conference, and uh, they were gracious to us, and uh, we stayed in the Omni Hotel, and I wanted to go to a department store across the street. And it was freezing. I, I, I got real sudden blood. <laughs> but on the way up, I noticed something on the uh, Kentucky license plate. So it was a butterfly. I was going to the license plate. And I thought, well, that's a good sign because that's one of the unofficial symbols for Eleanor. And I was really glad to see that. It made me feel welcome. My sponsor is uh, Carol T. from Longdale, California. And she has 29 years in service. And, uh, she has prompted me to come out and do this, and it still makes me nervous, so I bring my notes with me, and I refer back to them, but maybe one day I'll be able to do that without them, but that is still the part of me that is not confident as I wish I could be, which is really strange because I bring notes here, and uh, in my line of work, I rattle off the top of my head without any problem, but being among friends, I get nervous, and that, that's uh, part of the character defect that I still have to work on. I got to Al-Anon um, as a probation officer. I'm a chief probation parole officer. And uh, that kind of surprised these ladies. I was, uh, <laughs> we got to eat lunch together today. And uh, I think they were surprised at what I did for a living. I'm not on the street anymore, but I supervise 14 other officers. But I used to run the streets and gun in hand and uh Bulletproof vest and all the whole work to still have that and occasion go out. And I miss that. Because I liked working with the people I had on probation. <laughs> they were saner than the staff that I supervised. <laughs> but I, what I did a long time ago was I used to send people to AA. And uh, I heard it was a good program, but I didn't know very much about it. And then I met a few AA members and then and doing that, they encouraged me to come and just sit and listen so I would know a little bit more about the program. So the local group in my hometown welcomed me with open arms just like I was one of them. It didn't take them long to know where I needed to be. And they gently steered me over to Island on because they knew what I needed. But um, they broke traditions, I'm sure, because they had me with open AA meetings without me to set some traditions or whatever because they put me in. And it was a small group and they wanted me you're welcome. Um, at that time in my life, I very badly needed something. I had been through a series of relationships and uh, was going through a marriage that was falling apart. And uh, that was my saving grace to get to those meetings. And that first year of session, I had a whole combination of AA and all my meetings. I went to the very first year. I still got an open AA meeting, and uh, even after I found Alanon. But that first year I went to a combination and my group of home group is for primary town in the same time. 
and uh, in that Duncan church. And I'll always be grateful that AA took me in instead of where to be. And uh, if I always tell people, you know, that most of us would benefit from Al-Anon if we went to some open AA meetings, and most people in AA would benefit if they went to some Al-Anon meetings. Well, <laughs> see, there's a lot of crossover areas, and we don't know how much we're alike until we start going to the opposite meeting of what we need. And some of us need both meetings. And uh, there are a lot of double winners. But grateful to AA. I'm basically a pretty quiet person for the most part. Um, but I live my life vicariously through the alcoholic. I enjoyed watching the excitement from the outside, but I, I was too afraid to participate in that. I would do the backup work for the alcoholic, you know, from enabling him to driving him to where he needs to go to whatever. And so but I live life vicariously through that person, whoever it might be. And um it was my way of experiencing excitement without getting into deep. And I was also I was also afraid. I was afraid of those things. I uh, didn't have enough confidence in myself to go and experience that without being terrified. I was afraid I would mess up and people would think badly of me enough. And as that came to be later on, I messed up enough on my own without the alcohol without doing that. As I said, there are a lot of crossover areas in both fellowships. And what I've heard in both fellowships, we talk about fear in Illinois and resentment. And we talk about pride. And I think about my situation with what a lot of alcoholics do and describe the wind blowing through the hole in the soul. And I had that hole too, just like the alcoholic does. So if I didn't feel mine with alcohol, I filled it with the alcoholic. You know, so if I didn't have an alcoholic, what, what, one relationship ended for one reason, I found another. I usually found the next one before the first one ended. <laughs> because I could tell ahead of time, that's that Al-Anon sense about us, you know, that this is going south, you know, we better start looking just in case. <laughs> so it wasn't, it, you know, you had to be prepared, you know, you've got to uh, do a lot of prep work if you're in Illinois, <laughs> and you don't want to not be prepared when that comes along. But um, even today, when I get off track, I, I look at what people describe as um, and I saw it on a tape one day that said, uh, round up the usual suspects. And that was applicable to what I do for a living in law enforcement. And I have to look at where fear and pride and resentment come into my life. You know, where am I getting off track today? Um, I basically had lost a lot of my direction when I came to Al-Anon. I had lost my moral compass, basically. And I grew up in a uh, very... Uh, faith-filled family and had always gone to church but I somehow thought that God wanted me to take what he had given me as a child and figure it out and God seemed to be far away in a distant tower looking after the big, big picture and somehow I was supposed to figure this out I believed that he loved me but I just didn't talk to him on a daily basis like I do now as far as saying you know, I can stop any time and talk to the guys my understanding and I just felt like he was, had bigger things to worry about than me. So I was supposed to use the tools that he gave me. Um, when losing that direction, I heard somebody say that he lost the eyes to see and the ears to hear. I certainly had done that. Um, I wanted a leader to be the life and did not know how to get there. And I had little sprinklings of that in my childhood. 
And some people talk about, you know, drinking to try to get back to that magic moment in their life. I was trying to recapture where I felt comfortable. And never could find it. Just my own devices. I was very fearful as a child and, uh, lacked a lot of confidence. And I was afraid that if you really knew me as I was, that you wouldn't like me. So I did a lot of people please. It's remarkable that I'm alive today with some of the things I did. But yet I volunteered to do a lot of things in Mars. Uh, I've won awards. I've worked in radio. I've been a radio announcer. I've sold radio advertising. I've been a police officer. Um, I've been a probation officer here for, I'll have 24 years of that in September. So I've, I've done a lot of things that were exciting in life, but I didn't set out to do that thinking that's interesting. I just, it was in front of me and I did it. And I did it with much fear. And later learned to watch it. Uh, I had a law enforcement background with my family and so that was kind of natural that I eventually fell into that. My family had a radio station, so I grew up around that. I used to work in the summertime as a radio announcer, and then later sold advertising. I like that definition of fear that says you're afraid of losing something you have or not getting something you want. That's meant a whole lot to me, because that is one of those reality check things that I do on a very frequent basis. When I start getting anxious, what am I feeling, you know, as far as that? And I can almost always go back to fear. And almost everything when I've got... Society, I can go back on that, do some inventory work, and that's where it is. Um, but life is pretty distorted for me when I came into this program, and it started at a very early age. And that was before I met my first alcoholic. Um, but it's just, when I came in, I was very much into the people pleasing, fixing, controlling mode. I could not bear to have anything in front of me that needs fixing and not trusting. Um, didn't matter what it was. If you put the object in the wrong place, I go over there and move it, put it back where I thought it was supposed to be. And it was great effort, even to this day, not to do that. Um, even working in my work setting, I'll hear a problem going on down the hall. I wish I didn't have the, the hearing that I do sometimes. I wish I was there. But I, <laughs> at times, because I can hear something problem going down the hall between two officers, and I'm sitting there thinking, no, no, don't do it that way. You know, but it, I sometimes have to sit on my hands underneath me and not go down the hall and fix somebody because they have the right to learn something themselves and then if they won't help, they can come and ask for it. Um, so that's something that I have to work on on a daily basis. I try to be perfect. I didn't know I was trying to be perfect, but I, like I said, I was afraid you wouldn't like me if I didn't make that effort. Um, if there was a great crowd of people, I, I was raised in a family, uh, in a social climate. We were big kids in a small pond in my family. Um, my dad was a millionaire. And I was known as Johnny Wallace's daughter. So I kind of felt like I was fighting that battle when I was young. Now it doesn't matter to me anymore. I am who I am. And, uh, Grateful to be an Al-Anon member and grateful to be Mrs. Cool. So, but in that setting, I was afraid. And I, I was kind of fighting back trying to, to find my own place in life without that tax to me. Um, I want to tell you, in junior high, I had this precursor thing that happened to me 
the Guatemalan now and now, and I think this is very symbolic. I swear to pink elephant. <laughs> Had a lot of those things on the bed, on the dresser. <laughs> should have been a sign then that I knew what, what direction I should be going. But the way I collect cows, I collect poultry. Still like to have some of those pink elephants, so they probably keep me in line and keep me honest. I was worried about my parents when I was growing up. Um, my mother and I probably had quite a bit of conflict on and off before I got married. I was worried about her drinking. Um, she would drink occasionally until my dad got further along in history. He was in banking. And she, uh, ran the family radio station at the house. But as she got more successful, she began to drink with her to have people over. And he would drink too, but he, he didn't drink the same way she did. If she didn't drink often, but when she drank, I worried about it. And she would have booze in the cabinet and buy high in the condiments and all these things, you And, um, she didn't want the neighbors to know how much she drank. And I was terrified. It's that instant gut feeling thing when you're watching somebody you love drink. And you think they're getting out of control. And she was a wonderful woman. She was a love machine, but I was so afraid that she was going to become a loose woman. <laughs> and I went on to be a whole lot looser than she would ever dream of. <laughs> she had probably what we needed in both fellowships. And, uh, she tried very much to fix me, and that's where we had conflict. I w- as far as her drinking went, I worried as far as that goes, that part of my character defect. But the other part, she tried to fix me. And we were both heads, and I ended up being a mirror image of that. And I realized how much one day I was, uh, back in North Carolina, I'd gone over to see one of the guys that supervised at one of the kiddos, and I was standing there waiting for him to come out, and I saw my image in the glass, and it was her. We looked so much alike as we got older. And uh, it, I had been an hour and after a while, it just made me smile because it made me think that much more of how much a mirror image we were as far as fixing each other. I had lived in a desert town for a while when I was a police officer, and I had moved back later to my hometown. And she would call just about every day and invite me to lunch. I had an apartment. And we got so aggravating, I thought, gosh, I can't even have five minutes to myself. And so I would go begrudgingly, not wanting to go and eat lunch with her every day, but I felt like I had to, that's no other. And so finally, because of this program, I learned how to say no. But I learned how to say no so I could say yes. So when I finally learned how to say no, I could then say yes to her and go see her son for lunch and enjoy that time. But I had to realize that my behavior was hurting both of them. And I very much wanted to keep that relationship with her and not hurt her. And I couldn't figure out a way to do it, so I changed me. It wasn't about changing her. She never really changed in that sense. But what happened after I went to Al-Anon, I learned how to change my own behavior. Our relationship got better. And she eventually learned how to back away just a little bit and not try to hold on with me with both hands. And it was amazing. Um, they say people sometimes get better around us, and I think that they do. She was a sweetheart, but she uh, died several years ago, and uh, 
God bless her. The world got smaller and smaller. And, uh, but she, she was a wonderful lady. She loved me dearly. And she just lived long enough to say she can all get married. I think she was very happy about that. But one of the things I learned to do with her, because of Alanoid, was to love her just the way she was. And not try to fix her. Because I had this same character defect. Like two people sitting there battling each other. And, uh, as she got older, she loved to walk, and but she wasn't able to walk very far nor very fast. And I was in the speed walk, and I was, had gotten out, and I, I really did speed walk. At times when I was back doing that in my hometown, so I would walk from my apartment over to her house, and walk very slowly around the neighborhood. And it would take a while just to walk downtown four or five blocks and walk back to her house. But I did that, and I did it with a loving heart, then I walked back that night. So the way that you learn how to bridge that, that gap, because you love somebody, and you want that relationship. Um, but she was my hero. She had a loving heart that wouldn't quit. When I was a police officer in solitary, I had some problems, medical problems, and I didn't know I was out of the clinic. And uh, I was on the way to work one day, and, and uh, I was getting ready to go into work, and I fell down and fell down my townhouse stairs because I blacked out and had the pain. And so I came into and I got in my car, and I thought, well, this is really bad. So I drove to the hospital. And I called her, and this lady here, full of fear that kept me in the hospital for three days, but she drove from her hometown, full of fear of not driving hardly any out of her hometown. She drove about two hours away every day to that hospital. She found her a little path she could stay on and not lose her route, but she came every day. She also took care of a sick cat one time that was being pulled apart by a dog. She was, um, the cat hadn't felt well and she was sick in the bed with the flu. And, uh, she got out of bed one time because she heard the cat screaming and, and fought off the dog so the dog looked more satisfied. But there were little things about her that, that were courageous. And I don't want to forget those things because when I look at her and I look at other people in my family sometimes or in this fellowship, I look for my heroes. I feel, look for people I want to be like when I grow up. Now, I may not totally want to be like that, but I can find today, because of this program, I can do like Alan I said, take what you like and leave the rest. But there are many, many things that I admire about people in this fellowship. I may not like all of it, but I don't want to. I used to think I had to find the complete passage. I'll be looking forever, because I can't, none of us are perfect. And so I find the things that I admire about people and the people I want to be like when I grow up. I said, my sister, I have one sister, my sister and I, um, were Johnny Wallace's daughter. And he was a white fellow and a young person. Um, and he did a lot in the community. And we owned the radio station as well. But he was hard to get to know. And once I got he did to be sitting on Dad's knee anymore. You know, he didn't know what to do with his daughters anymore. And wasn't real active or present in their lives. He provided a roof over our head and us through college. And we didn't like anything financially. But he was not present for the kind of things that you would be present for for your children. Um, but it was because of this program that I learned that he had fears too. 
One of the things that came home to me was that um, two years ago when um, some of the guys that she sponsored honored him for a 25th celebration of his anniversary for God two years ago. And I invited my dad and my stepmother, because my dad and married, and invited him to come. But he was at a loss for this event. He didn't understand anything about um, AA, even though I tried to talk about AA now and I was trying to turn the name of that question. Didn't really understand what was going on. And very uncomfortable that he was not the center of attention at this event. But because of this fellowship, what I did was I learned how fear-driven he was. You know, he, he just didn't know what to do if he wasn't leading the path, and that was what he had always done. And it was Tuesday, so he didn't know what to do with anything. Um, he didn't uh, offer a lot of emotional support going through life. And obviously my sister and I both had our successes and failures going through life, but what I tried to do is look at the gifts that he gave me in life that were good. Um, and again, like I said, we take what we like and move the rest. So, you know, I think about, you know, I learned how to drive at a very early age. I drove a piece in the backyard with sticks, so I learned how to drive. And I knew how to drive by the time I got my license. And you will. Um, I could go, you know, I, I've got a lot of things probably aren't very useful. I can pour the metal together. <laughs> and, but I, he took me to social events because of that. That's what the family did. And I could go out and greet people, and if I had to meet the president today, I wouldn't be as nervous as I am right now in this room. And it's a different setting. It's just what I was taught to do. Um, and it did keep a roof over our heads and provide for us financially. So what I have to do is look at those things and try to understand where he was coming from in other ways. I don't have to agree with him. I just have to, to work with it and accept it um, and know that. Uh, he said, passed away, and I will tell this, and um, I will tell you about the will, and I tell this as part of my story because even though we have problems in life, some things heal over time, and this is a thing that's still healing within me, but it's better. So I love what Alan I says, is that we seek progress rather than perfection. So when things heal, it doesn't always heal overnight. Um, my dad, like I said, was a wealthy soul, and he and my sister had a falling out probably six or seven years before he passed away. And my dad remarried about six months after my mom died, and he married a woman that's only about five years older than I was, five, six years old. And, uh, so he was, you know, I was kind of worried that she was after the money, but yet at the same time he seemed happy, you know, he tried to wish everybody the best and everything. So, um, anyway, my sister and dad had a falling out over an issue a few years before he died, and they never really were able to really repair that relationship before he, before he died. Uh, he died and left his whole estate to my stepmother, every nickel. And so, I was kind of surprised, and I, I couldn't understand that, and, uh, because one is he and I had still maintained a relationship. I was going on with him, and love him the way I could love him because of his program. And I would go and spend time with him. And um, I never understood why he did that. And I still don't know. But it, we all, what was upsetting to my sister and I, and this is unfortunate in some ways, 
the way that he showed love when we were growing up is he bought us things. He bought us jewelry, he bought us this net or whatever. Uh, so those are nice things and I appreciate them. Uh, but I think we may have made a mistake by equating some of his love that way. But it was an unusual circumstance and um this is uh was a little bit painful to see this happen. Because I felt like, you know, I had kind of been stabbed in the back a little bit. So, but over time, this healed. And I used to sit and tell that without crying. But now I can tell you that without falling apart. It's because things heal over time. It's still a little bit of wound there, but it's not festering anymore. Um, and it was not anything I could do anything about. It was legal, it was solid, it was whatever. But, um, and it caused a great impasse between my sister and I. Because he wanted to fight this thing, and there was, we looked into it, and there was nothing to fight. So I did what Alan and I did, you know, look through it and decide and move on. You know, she didn't want to move on, so it caused a, caused a problem between uh, my sister and myself. My sister's five years older now. She was also one of my heroes. She was a, she was a sweetheart on the inside and, and hurting very badly. One time she reached out for help. Keith and I, and asked for some help, and I think she needs the other fellowship, but did not um, follow through. And so all I can do is to keep the door open. Um, when she and my dad had their falling out, like six or seven years before he died, uh, I would not take a side because I was trying to love both these people the way they were. And because I wouldn't side with anybody, she thought I was fighting against them. So that caused a great uh, risk there that I didn't want. I wanted my sister. I was getting older. I'm not old now, but I'm getting older, and I want to share these things that two sisters ought to share. She's only sister I've got, and I don't have any brother. So um, when he died, she came to the funeral home to see me, but she waited outside. And so we sat in the car, and I said, I want my sister back. So we were able to talk a little bit and put things back together. So because of this will and the fact that I did not want to carry it beyond a certain point because I thought it was fruitless, um, it has now caused another rift between us, and she doesn't want to have anything really to do with me. But I'm not going to give up. Alanine teaches us not to give up hope, and I've learned all the things about hope I've learned in these words. And I keep that door open, and I call her occasionally, and I send her cards, things like that. Because one day, I have a feeling that, that a situation will present itself where we will be able to work out, and you know, and we'll be able to get back together. Most of the alcoholics in my life came from those I dated. And after I came to Al-Anon, I understand what insanity is. And I love that definition of repeating the same behavior over and over again expecting a different result. I would be a very rich woman if I had a nickel for all <laughs> those patterns that I repeated over and over again. Um, like I said, I lack, lack confidence and I live my life through the people that I dated because they were doing the exciting things. And I live on the edge of their lives. And, um, that alcoholic I might be dating was the thing that filled the hole in my soul. Um, I love that song that says, looking for love in all the wrong places. 
I did that. Um, and normal relationships just bore the hell out of me. I don't know any other way to say it. I had a few of those sprinkled in between alcoholics. They just awful. <laughs> My first husband was normal. God bless him. He's remarried now and very happy and I'm, I'm delighted and I've been able to make an amends to him. But um, when I went through relationships, you know, I, I would occasionally date a normal guy and it just didn't work out. Um, I would drive the alcoholic places and pick up the flat for him. He was too drunk. I'd drive him home. Uh, I remember having dates, you know, where I remember one date in particular, a guy was supposed to come and, and he was supposed to be there at 7 o'clock and he didn't show up. So I'm sitting around. He finally calls about 8 and said, I'm coming, but I've got to deliver Christmas presents to my children. And I was supposed to meet my ex and, and deliver these Christmas presents to him. I said, that's fine, because I'll be there just a little while. Well, he never shows up, and, you know, it gets later and later, he calls, he says, I'm on my way, and he still doesn't show up. So then, about midnight, I gave up and went to bed. So, you know, about one o'clock, there's a knock on my door, it's the alcoholic. So I invite him on in, sit on the couch, and talk to him, just like that was the normal way to have a date, you know, and that's the way you're supposed to do it. But in all these relationships, my focus was on whoever I was dating. They were my total focus and my life around it. It's a wonder I kept anything going. Um, you know, it's a wonder sometimes that I held on to jobs because my focus was so much on the alcoholic that I didn't um, do as good a job probably as I would have otherwise. And it's only by the grace of God that I was able to fulfill any obligations at times. Uh, but when I was a police officer, I was telling these ladies, you know, there was times I was a police officer, and I basically designed that particular job because I was worried about myself. I had thought so much about different relationships I had experienced in that time frame that my mind was not on what it's supposed to be. And when you're carrying a 357 on your hip, and your mind's not where it's supposed to be, you think about those airline pilots that might be drinking, we're just the same. Yeah. You think about that because, you know, we may be thinking about something else and, and my judgment might not be right, you know, and a very bad thing to happen. What I did when I would be dating these series of alcoholics was I often turned away my other friends that loved and cared about me. Those circles got smaller because people that did care would call me up and ask me, do you want to go do something? No, I'm waiting on the alcoholic to call. But I didn't say it that way. You know, I make up some excuse, but that's what I was doing, you know. But then, uh, you know, I missed a lot of opportunities to have some really good lasting relationships. It's just friends. And every time things would happen, I, I can remember, I don't want to forget that I sat on my couch and cried for hours at a time with my knees up underneath my chin like a ball. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me. And it, you know, it's only by the grace of God that I didn't seriously the steps of thinking where I would have killed myself. I never got to that point. And I think that's God's grace playing in there. I know many a person has thought about killing themselves and even attempted it. But I was almost there. My first marriage was to a normal guy. And what had happened after these series of alcoholic relationships was I was finally tired. And I met this guy. And this is unusual, um, 
didn't really know him very well. He was deputy sheriff, and he just started with sheriff's department, and I was probation officer. And, and um, I had an attack of appendicitis come over me all of a sudden. I never had any problems with my appendix. So I have to call for help, and instead of calling my parents who live less than a mile away, I called the sheriff's department. <laughs> there were my running buddies over there, you know. <laughs> and I didn't, I was just trying to call my parents and wake them up at one or two o'clock in the morning, you know, and most parents would have been glad to come out, you know, while I was afraid of another parent would do that thing. Anyway, two deputies come out and one was my future husband. So then, um, you know, he came and sat on me and all this stuff and so it didn't take long, you know, I latched on somebody else. You know. So, and if it turned out he was basically a normal guy. But it didn't work out. And but yet I thought, well, you know, if I cannot find happiness, I will marry a decent human being. And I had all this series of relationships where I never was happy and I thought, well, he fixed the wrong soul somehow or another. Just find a decent human being that fell down. And that's what I tried to do. That was my plan. Um, so even the day I married him I had cold feet. And this was not nervousness on your wedding day. This is way past that. But I did not have the guts to back out. I did not have the guts to back out. I was too afraid that I would upset family and friends and people that came to the wedding and all this stuff. I loved him at a certain level, but not enough to sustain a marriage. And I had to make amends for that. Because he was a decent human being. And, and thank goodness I was able to do that. Um, he had come over, he's met Keith, and he had come over with uh, his wife Susan, and he had two beautiful daughters. When um, my dad died, he had come over, and he came over when my mom died. And so I was able to speak to him. But he and I are on good speaking terms. So we had a conversation on the phone one time, and, and that was the opportunity that God had presented for me to make an answer to him. And thank God I was able to. Um, when I came into the fellowship and you told me that I had to surrender my will and life over to the care of God as I understood him, I thought that's a grand and glorious idea. And I did that except for relationships. <laughs> that was the very last part I turned over. Somehow, some way, I thought I could figure this out. But God had to fit the humor and a plan for us. And when I turned that over and said, I fit, if there's somebody out there, God, you find him, I'm tired, I'm not going to look anymore, he found peace. And, and I do think that God found peace, I have no doubt in my mind. But I had to get out of the way, you know, God had a plan. Um, one of the things I've had to learn in Al-Anon is how to have good relationships with other people. Uh, I was so afraid growing up that I didn't know how to tell you what I thought about a particular issue. And I was up Southern and I was afraid. I, I did not want to be an aggressive woman. And it's so funny. I, I learned how, how to be assertive as a police officer and a probation officer, but in my personal life, I could not do it. And, and you taught me how to be assertive enough to take care of myself and take care of the things that I needed to be responsible for without being aggressive. And I'll always be grateful for that. It, it's a strange thing that I get nervous up here, but I, I stand in court, like I said, and rattle off testimony in front of a judge and a whole lot of other people. It never, never bad an eye. So it, it's a different kind of setting. 
you taught me what it was like to surrender rather than submit. Um, I was so much of a people pleaser that I would do just about anything just so people would like me. And I submitted to things that I would not normally have done if you asked me, is that a good idea? Or if you would ask me to get advice to somebody else, so would you tell that person to do what you did? I said, no, I wouldn't tell that person to do what I did. But yet I did it. And I submitted to things that were against the moral compass that I had been given in life just because I wanted to fit in. But what I learned to do because of this problem was to surrender. As I said, I think peace was put in my life because of God's grace. We met at an AA meeting, and uh, he had gone there to support a friend that was speaking that night. He had said in Fayetteville, North Carolina, had moved to Alabama, was going to be moving back. I had gone there with a friend of mine that had gone to the AA meeting and gone to the treatment center. I go with my friend that had been in treatment. Uh, that was going back to this particular place to hear a speaker. And we met that night and, and we've been together ever since. Um, and we've had to have the help of the loving sponsors, Tom Pierce's sponsors. Um, my former sponsor, Isabel, and my present sponsor, Carol, she's in Longdale, California. They have been there to walk through these times in our life with us. When we've been dating, when we were engaged, uh, and Keith and I knew each other about four years from the time we met to the time we married. Now, I would have married Keith sooner. But that was the time period that we needed to make this relationship work. There's so many people stuck in there. I know uh, sometimes it works out when you only know somebody a short period of time in there. But that, for us, we needed that time period to get to know each other and to work through the program together. Last year, it's been really important in my life, and my sponsor always says, keep it light. Every time I call about worried about something, you know, she says, keep it light, you know, don't get bogged down in something, you know, that you think or should not be fixing, and just, you know, pray for what God's wisdom is to go through a particular situation. But I've had to learn to laugh at myself, and uh, I was in the courthouse one time in, in Fayetteville, and I had on the elevator with a slave I used to supervise on probation. She got on there with her husband. The door shut and she's looking behind her and she's looking at me and looking back behind me. She said, Miss Lewis, your shirt pipe was in the back. <laughs> sure enough, it was. I had on a long dress, kind of like I would have on today, and it was a full skirt, long black dress, very pretty thing, knit dress. And the bottom of my hem was tucked up in the top of my pantyhose in the back. Now, thank goodness this was a long dress because by the time the fabric had folded in half and tucked in up here, there was just enough back there covering up what had to be covered up, but not much. So I made a new fashion statement. The thing was, I made a new fashion statement for over an hour. I had been in the ladies' room probably an hour before that. I had been in my office, I've been up in the court's office, I've been all over the courthouse, and nobody that was friends of mine had the guts to tell me this. <laughs> so I was very grateful that I've always tried to treat the people that I had on probation with decency, because if I had not, she probably would have never told me that. She felt like she could tell me that. But 
But the good thing was that I could laugh about this, and I pulled it out in the back, and I said, thank you very much, and I laughed the rest of the day. <laughs> but I had been mortified a few years ago before this program. I, I had just come apart, and you were thinking, how many people have I flashed in the last hour? <laughs> Well, one time the sprinkler was running back home. Not the not this underground sprinkler, but somebody has the sprinkler wrong in the yard. And I told Keith that the power had been out in the neighborhood, and I told Keith the power must have come back on because so the sprinkler was on over in the yard. But this was a sprinkler propelled by the force of water. So I'm not very smart sometimes. You know? <laughs> so you learn to laugh about your own mistakes like that. <laughs> I love what the program tells us to talk to each other and reason things out. So, you know, I've had the experience of both people in AA and Al-Anon over the years to help me. Um, and when, if a sponsor is not available, you know, find an old time to talk to. You know, there's somebody always around that's willing to talk to you. And um, I try to get outside of myself. I share meetings. I, I pick up after meetings and set up and do the things I need to do to get out of myself and be a service. Um, I love Alan on bookmark. It says try to do something for somebody else and not get found out. It's basically what amounts to. And that's always fun. Because you know there's a little bit of side to us that's human like, I wish they knew I did. You know, I wish I could get credit for that. But it's, it's a wonderful spiritual discipline to try to practice that thing and not get credit for something that you do for somebody else. And I've tried today to, to pay sincere compliments. And say thank you for the things I've been given. I sure have been given a lot. Prayer has been so much of a big part of my life. Sometimes prayer in my life and faith is in a formal setting like in church. Uh, sometimes it's in a more casual setting. But what I learned here from you is that I can have a personal relationship with the God of my understanding. You didn't live in the fear of power. Over there, you know, someplace far away looking after the universe and didn't have time for me. He really did have time for me. And he has time for all of us. But I, you taught me I could start my day over. If I screwed it up from the get-go, I could stop right there and start over. But being the compulsive people-pleaser and perfectionist, it's just like something on a piece of paper. If I marred my piece of paper and had to scratch through, I'd pull that sheet off. Because I couldn't stand that mistake. In front of me. And so today I can scratch through something and say, whoop, no, go back to God, and I can start over any time during my day. The one thing I can do for other people is to give honor and attention to them. Uh, somebody comes and asks for my help to be willing to give it. Half the time I start out with an agenda every day, especially if I'm driving to work. And a lot of times I like to pray on the way to work. And it's been help to turn off the radio on the way to work for most days and play instead. So I'm in a better space when I get there. I get up usually about 4.30 in the morning and I get out and walk. I have to get work at 8 o'clock and I get up at 4.30 so I can walk because that's my quiet time. Not only to get my exercise in, but, but I listen to birds and I listen to God. But it makes me in a better place when I get to work that day so that I'm in a, in a place where I can be of service. You know, those programs that have presented people in my life, I've, I've really been enriched by people in those fellowships. I found people that I did want to be like when I grew up. 
It also helped me take a look at family members. Two of the people I've known most that are not in this program, that haven't been in the program with his parents. His mother was the biggest lover of children and everybody else that came in for a life that I've ever seen. But so was his dad. And they did not have a lot growing up in life financially. But they have what counted. He had a lot of love. And um, I'm always grateful to go home to Ohio to Martin Spirit to see the family. And we just recently went up for a family reunion. Uh, started the big family reunion before she said that years ago, and then we continued it. And this is the thing where 80 or 90 people come. That she had 10 brothers and sisters, and all these people had spouses, and their children, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, you know, whole whole crew. And I have loved this family, not just because of his, but I got I got the benefit of having a big family when I didn't, when I was growing up. But watching them is interesting, and how they live their life is interesting and, and gave me a really good example of what it was like to be two people that were married to each other that loved each other very much. One thing I had to learn to do in life is not be so jealous. When I was getting an alcoholic, I was always jealous of his time. And I've had to learn to work on that. I always looked at life as a pie and that there were sections of pie and that the alcoholic gave away sections of pie, there was less pie for me. And so that meant he didn't spend as much time with me. And what I learned was that in this fellowship, life is abundant. The promises are abundant. And that if I will work this fellowship, there'll be plenty for, for not only for me, but for everybody. Um, and I also learned I didn't need that much and require as much attention the way I used to require from alcohol. If I need a hand to fill that hole, I don't need that now. I have a love with peace that I see people sharing love with each other, but I don't make them responsible for trying to fill that hole up anymore. I have to do that by working this person and having a, a relationship with a God of my understanding. I used to sit in the net that I'm angry about things. And now I can admit it, and when I start to feel it from time to time, I'm impatient, so I go do something about it. So pray about it, and if I'm in a bad place, I get away from people so I don't confuse on them, um, and, and for it to come out that way. And so many times I've looked back and thought, well, why did this happen? And now I go back and look and see God is saving me from myself. If I feel more impatient with the traffic light with all the traffic here, sometimes I'm supposed to roll down the window and hear the birds sitting on the stop sign. And, even little things like that, you know, I, I try to look at life in a different perspective now. I try to look at things that come up problems like, and I love that Alan Osberg and how important is it? Because all the things I was saying about in life aren't nearly as important as I thought they were. But I used to worry people to death because, you know, I made them very uncomfortable because I was always worried. Now, I can get in the fretting mode, and, and people testify to that, but I still do that from time to time, but it's not on a regular basis. And I'll catch myself today. And um, I'll, I won't like myself anymore when I get in those modes, and I can tell it. And I'll start pulling back and try to apply the principles of this program. And I love the attachment. The attachment is something that I've only heard in Illinois. I wish I could tell you I heard it in L.A. But maybe it's been said in L.A., but I've never heard it in. And I love that 
definition of suffering the one you love from the disease that you hate. So then I, what I do with anybody, I can work this program with the alcoholic, because there's a non-alcoholic out there that's just pulling my chain, I drop him in the alcoholic's lap. And I put him just like I was the alcoholic, I'm fine. Because I know what to do with that. So, um, and I know that that is a disease talking to me, not that person. You know, that person that get up today, set their clock at 6 a.m. to give me a hard time. That was not for the game plan, even though it seemed like it at the time. You know, so I've got to back away and get, get back up to reality. I was in a group one time that had resentment marbles, and uh, we used to pick up marbles and, and learn to play for people we had resentment about. And you could come back later after the resentment was over, and you could share that with your group if you wanted to, or you didn't have to. And I picked up one one time because I had a supervisor that just me crazy. And uh, I picked it up and, and I shared it with me. And every time I'd open up my chains first, I'd pray for this guy. So I did kind of put it back. If somebody asked me what it was about one time, they said, well, you should have put it on the stairs and let him fall on it. <laughs> I said, no, no, I don't think that's what the point was designed for. <laughs> but today I asked for help in this fellowship. And uh, I'm not afraid to ask for help anymore. That was one of the greatest things that I learned is that I did not have to walk through life alone. And uh, there are plenty of people out here that I can hold their hand and help them and vice versa. Um, but I've loved it because you loved me the way that I was and that I did not have to um, run that fear anymore that where I had to go around and be a people pleaser. I want to thank you for allowing me to be your guest this evening. And it's been an honor to be here. Thanks.